It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Newsweek's Foreign Service. I'm Josh Lowe. And I'm Meryn Gedda. And each week we look at the big stories from the U.S. and what they mean for the rest of the world. This week, we're taking a look at the Republican Party. And while it's by no means a foregone conclusion which way this election is going to go, everyone's still waiting very excitedly to see what could happen. Trump could win, Hillary could win. At the same time, after a slightly difficult week for the Trump campaign, Trump has pulled behind a little bit in the polls. And we thought we'd look ahead to what happens if he loses to the Republican Party in the longer term. And the question really of whether they can win the presidency again ever in the foreseeable future. And there's definitely a point to be made that Trump has made so many inflammatory comments about so many different groups now, you know, from Hispanics to African-Americans to women. It does seem that these comments could potentially damage the party for future elections, that these demographics just won't see them as a party that's friendly to them. Absolutely. And there's the question of uh, how the party is divided. There's obviously there's Tea Party side of the party. There's the more moderate side of the party. We might have a little look at how that's all playing out and how that impression of division is affecting their image. And also there is a, a basic mathematical point as well to be made that um, at the moment the Democrats automatically have 246 electoral votes. That's significant because you need 270 to win the presidency. So not only has the Republican Party been disadvantaged by having Donald Trump, not only are they disadvantaged by the schism, they're disadvantaged due to basic mathematical differences. Absolutely. So there's quite a lot to look into. Um, and I think that's uh, enough from just me and you, Mira, and I'll bring in our guests. So we've got Charlie Wolf, a political commentator and talk show host. And we've got Elizabeth Linder, the founder and CEO of the Conversational Century, an advisory firm specialising in the space where leaders and technology intersect. She previously spent eight years at Facebook, where she founded the Politics and Government Division. Welcome to you both. We're going to have to, first of all, talk about Donald Trump's comments, because obviously this week um, he's faced a fresh controversy about something that he said um, 11 or 12 years ago about women. And it's one in a long line of comments he's made that has been so appalling to women. Um, There's a clip that we're going to play now from Anderson Cooper from CNN questioning Donald Trump about what he said. You called what you said locker room banter. You described kissing women without consent, grabbing their genitals. That is sexual assault. You bragged that you have sexually assaulted women. Do you understand that? No, I didn't say that at all. I don't think you understood what was said. This was locker room talk. This is a man, as, as we said earlier, who's offended just about every minority group there is. I'd be interested in hearing from you two. I mean, do you think if he'd been more circumspect, he would be leading in the polls? I'm not too sure about it, because one of the things that uh, the Democrats have always had this ability of doing is owning the high ground. They don't deserve it, but they somehow own it. 
As with Donald Trump, and, and I'm not going to defend the comments, but some of the stuff was taken out of context or blown out of proportion. For instance, the Muslim comment. Now, as a communications advisor, I would have said maybe something to the effect of people from Syria or this country or that country, I don't think should go in the country yet until we know who they are. But you know, he distinctly said in that second clause, until the government figures out what the heck is going on. Uh, you know, he has a communications problem. Other things, yeah, I think he, he's misspoke. It's just funny that he doesn't seem to get the pass that sometimes he may deserve. I actually think that if we really zoom out and look at what this means, we're seeing a, a deeper crisis at play than a, than a communications crisis for Donald Trump. Uh, I think that his words and his vocabulary is one thing, and that's been quite inflammatory, and that's gotten quite a bit of play in the press. But I think what's really going on is a crisis of character for the American people. What characters, what leaders, what values do we expect the office of the presidency to have? And I think that we're sitting here in in London, a number of countries around the world, I don't think fully appreciate how much that office of the presidency means for American character, values, and leadership. And I think Donald Trump as a person, not as a communications message, fundamentally underlines uh, that, that symbol, uh, that person that we say the office of the presidency must and should attract people who are a bit better. That's what the George Washington president was. And I think that's what Republicans need to find in a post-Trump world. So there was an interesting point there that you're making about um, this being on a larger level, a bit more about the kind of values that we expect of a president. And the Republican Party, to some extent, has, like many center-right parties around the world, has had a bit of a monopoly on um, the kind of dignity of office and the idea of, you know, we're Reagan. the ones who put up the... Well, it, it, when character was king, yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, the, we're, the, we're the party that puts up the kind of strong, um, stable, charismatic leaders who exemplify American values, the Democrats, they're the dirty kind of um, crazy ones. We're the serious ones. Is Donald Trump at danger of damaging that image of the party? Absolutely. In fact, I was in Iowa just this past week uh, and did a bit of my market research, even though I was there for, for personal family reasons. <laughs> you just uh, can't stop. For my no, grandmother's no <laughs> 90th birthday. But, but I was asking these questions. And I think the most interesting feedback that I got in all of the conversations I had uh, with people there in Northwest Iowa is, you know, this is an election where less people than ever are putting out the Donald Trump signs in their front yards. And it was actually a large-scale farmer uh, and landowner who said to me, you know, Elizabeth, in this election, not only uh, are so many of my friends who have always voted Republican not voting for Donald Trump, um, but also of people who might be voting for Trump, they're not putting that badge out there like you usually do. America is famous for driving through small towns and seeing in the front of your house or your garden your signs of who you're going to vote for. What is there to be proud about with Donald Trump for the mainstream? And I think that that gets to this this broader issue about the, the person, the characters, the values he stands for. To go back to what you said earlier, Charlie, with this most recent thing that he's calling lockering banter, it was very, very clear it was sexual assault. The word litany was used as well, and that's the thing. It's, it's the latest in a litany of things that he has said. And perhaps some you can maybe excuse as poor communications. I personally can't, but maybe you can. 
Oh, but yeah, that's, that's not communication. That's obviously, yeah, that one is... Not that one, but some of the others. But surely this is going to affect voters. Surely minority groups will no longer see the Republicans as a party, perhaps that represents them. I think a lot will depend on what happens in the next few uh, few days and, and weeks ahead. Um, what the Republican Party sorely needs now, I think, is a massive Trump defeat as a symbol to all of these groups that Trump has so terribly offended that the party is uh, ready to rebuild. I think the worst thing that could happen for the Republican Party right now is a very close election because that will show that there are enough people in America willing to back this figure um, that it's going to turn away, I think, a lot of people. But I think if there's a resounding defeat, that actually gives the Republican Party the opportunity to pick up the pieces, identify a new suite of characters charismatic leaders who actually do reflect a closer image of what I think the mainstream of the Republican Party is looking for and and go from there. And he has, we should probably say, to be fair, made some attempts to reach out to minority voters, um, visiting an African-American church and so forth. We've got a clip, I think, by a guy called um, Eddie Gloud Jr., who's chair of African-American studies at Princeton, um, himself an African-American. He's giving his reaction to that. But I'd be interested to know what we think, uh, whether other voters will have seen it similarly. The one thing that we do know is that we can't take Donald Trump's appeal to African-American voters and Latino voters uh, as sincere. So do you think, you know, that kind of lack of sincerity, is that something that uh, firstly, minority voters are seeing from Trump? And secondly, is it something that's going to make it hard for the Republicans to get their trust again? Well, I think for me personally, and this is where it's been a kind of hard. Originally, when he was reaching out to African-American audiences, yes, I mean, they were all educated white women in the audience. and We all knew it was trying to assuage them. But at the same time, in his own cack-handed sort of way, I do see a bit of a sincerity there. And I think that is what has attracted a lot of people. You know, remember, we've had this sort of slick, willy years of, of uh, Bill Clinton. Uh, Barack Obama is very smooth speaking, but doesn't seem to listen. You know, it, it's all taking care of the, the elites and the different victim groups as they're defined and culture groups, etc. So there's a large portion. For instance, the, the thing that amazed me was, and the question I asked when we had, for instance, some of his original miscommunications, if I can use that as the, the, the code word, I would say to these people, it's not so much the uh, message implied, it's the message inferred, you know, that's the traction. He'd say these things and he still is getting traction. The people aren't happy about something and he's meeting that need. And just the last question I would raise on this, uh, this issue of minorities is that the party was kind of supposed to have learned these lessons in 2012. Didn't do particularly well under non-white voters back then. In, in fact, did best under white male voters. We've got a clip actually of, of Romney talking about some of the lessons from that campaign. And part of my problem was to win the nomination, which is a year long process or longer, you speak to people who vote in Republican primaries and they tend not to be the millennials or college students. They tend not to be the minorities. So I'm speaking to largely white audiences day in and day out. Now, Trump has obviously gone through that process himself. And some of the figures now are are quite stark. There was a Suffolk University poll in September that had him at 2% nationally among black voters. You had uh, in four polls in August, he was at either 1% or 2%. So they knew this was a problem. It's now still a problem under Trump. Why did they not learn the lesson? And and will they learn it again? I find this one so hard to understand sometimes, because honestly, if, if you look at the players and what the different parties stand for, the Republican Party, and I, I say this with all honesty and sincerity, is the party of the little guy. I, I don't know how it started out years ago uh, you know, as, as the grand old party, 
but therefore, you know, the sort of small businessman. And you look at, for instance, the Democrats are, you know, the trial lawyers, the uh, hedge fund managers, you know, Hillary talking to the banks, Wall Street and all of that. It's, it's Hollywood and the big flash money and what have you. But I suppose it's not as easy as saying to the minority voters, you must realize that, you know, we're the right party for you. They've got to sort of make that explicit. And I suppose that that's sort of the question, like, why wasn't that done? I mean, the Republican Party realized um, after Romney that they needed to do that. And it felt like they, they didn't really reach out enough to, to minority voters. Rubio and... Uh you know, for women, Joni Ernst, I thought was a fantastic candidate. We had, uh, I mean, even Cruz, I mean, he's a little bit too conservative for me, but still. I think part of the problem here is that um, because the Republican Party is quite split at the moment, you have a scenario where the definition of being a Republican Party member has gotten quite narrow. And I think that is massively detrimental for a political party just generally, because part of the, the point of subscribing to a party is, of course, there's, there's strength in numbers. But within that subscription, there should be room for maneuverability. You know, you should have a scale where some candidates are going to be a bit more conservative than others. And on a recent trip down to Texas, what I was hearing actually were a number of politicians saying that the definition of being a Republican has gotten narrower, which makes it less and less attractive for people to go into politics. And I think it makes it more difficult then to reach out to different communities because you're automatically pegged as not looking to your base. And to me, in the U.S., we need to, and especially with the Republican Party, we need to broaden that narrative of what Republicanism even means, or so few people can fit it, and it will appeal to so few that you can just forget about the minority vote. And so how do you go about that? I mean, is it, is it a case of a sort of some kind of digital experiment, Obama-style uh, grassroots thing? Or I think it's interesting you use the grassroots word. I think the grassroots is showing us that there's a problem, uh, and that's why I do raise the internet memes, because I think they're very telling uh, from America at what's, as to what's going on. But I really think this is all about the, the rise of an individual. You know, at the end of the day, political leadership uh, that's successful is, is one person with that intangible charisma or success story or ability to connect. I think that's why Hillary Clinton has struggled to be better liked, because she hasn't quite nailed that factor of being that one individual that everybody wants to, to follow. So I think the Republicans can rebuild, but I think it's going to take the leader stepping up to the plate that can actually redefine what this party means. I mean, the party historically has had tumbles, but you get that one Ronald Reagan figure to get the Republicans back on track and you see a whole different picture of what the values of the party represent. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. 
ChumbaCasino.com/slash/acast. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. We, we've seen that Trump's comments on minorities might cost the Republican Party support. Will his comments on the economy also, you know, hinder the party? Do you think they're no longer going to be seen as sort of the trusted voice on improving the American economy. I think what said it for me, just on a policy basis, listening to that first answer on the economy from the first debate, like I said, I speak to a lot of economists and they're very worried on the free trade thing if he'll turn into an isolationist. But when, when Trump was talking about lowering taxes to bring in, what was it, $2.5 trillion that's offshore, uh, paying 6% as opposed to 30%, you know, growing the economy, that to me is smart. And then Hillary came back with, I'm going to raise taxes on the rich. I've heard that story before. We've, we've done that story. It, you know, it just doesn't work from an economic standpoint. So at least from my own standpoint, for all his problems, this is a guy that at least has some business knowledge, I would hope could get uh, people around a table and come up with policies or know how to put the right people and, and define a policy and make it work. Whereas with Hillary, I just see, again, I think in the past. I think what's strange, though, is that Trump as this populist figure represents everything that the people who are really struggling with the way that 21st century economies tech, he represents everything that they don't. And that's what's so strange about this. I think usually populist politicians rise from, to use Josh's word, the grassroots. You know, they rise from within the Cinque Stelle movement, for example, you know, led by a comedian. So they rise from within and they somehow get traction and, and up they go. In the Trump case, it's just fundamentally bizarre yeah. that a New York uh, billionaire, billionaire um, who has uh, figured out how to maneuver around paying his fair share um, and who moves in these kinds of global elite circles has appealed to people who are feeling crushed by that global elite. And that's the part that I think was still a bit mm. unexplained. You had, you had Mitt Romney, and I don't know Mitt personally, but I have dear friends who are dear friends of his, who probably was the best president we never had, you know, worth a mere pittance of $250 million, who was shunned as being a rich boy, totally out of touch. And here's Donald, $10 billion in, you know, in assets, Trump, who's suddenly man of the people. It's definitely worth looking at, at Donald Trump and Mitt Romney because they do represent two very different faces of the party. And it does seem like a big threat to the Republicans is you know, what I referred to earlier as a, as a schism. You've got sort of the moderate conservatives of Mitt Romney who do think, for example, that immigration is sometimes good and that some of the illegal migrants should be given citizenship and so on. And then you've got the Tea Party candidates, which... I mean, Donald Trump obviously doesn't really fall into, but, you know, they're, they're more sort of outspoken. They are sort of vehemently against immigration. When you've got these two sort of opposing forces in the party, do you think that threatens its future? But right now, I think there's a distrust of the establishment and also that sort of middle moderate, almost left wing uh, John McCain sort of a Republican because they've put some of these people up. And, you know, we keep on losing. John McCain lost to Barack Obama. Then they put up Mitt Romney. Mitt Romney, 
by every matrix, you know, if you looked at the popularity ratings and all the other numbers, said Mitt Romney should have won and didn't. And the sort of more to the right people say, well, wait a minute, you're not standing for our values. Well, it was uh, America's third president, Thomas Jefferson, who famously said that every country needs a revolution uh, every few hundred years to keep fresh. Um, is it potentially a good thing that the Republican Party has gotten quite this divided? I almost think so. I think that a few years ago, it maybe would have been seen as dangerous for the Republicans that they were so divided because they couldn't perhaps, you know, come yeah. to this mainstream agreement on what they stand for. Break but at this Reagan point, yeah. it's so broken that it's become almost a Republican revolution, if you will, with all of these sides. And I think actually that's probably good. Because I think the Republicans did need to take a step back and say, okay, what do we actually stand for? How do Americans, a large part of which I'm from California, are minorities um, countrywide, but actually majorities increasingly at a statewide level? Where is everybody's place in this party? And so I actually think that in retrospect, if Trump is defeated, I do think that actually this will end up long term potentially being a good thing for the Republicans because it got so extreme and it was such a bizarre rise of political leadership based on values the Republicans themselves don't tend to agree with as a, as a party that perhaps it will actually be stronger for it in the long term. But on a more sort of specific level, if, as we're speculating here, if Donald Trump is defeated this time, um, Elizabeth, you said that this revolution might be good for the party. On the other hand, Trump supporters are pretty vociferous people, and, and we can't necessarily imagine them completely just vanishing. We've got a clip here of a couple of them um, giving their views on the Republican leaders who've criticized Trump. They want Hillary to win. The Republican Party needs to grow a spine, stand behind their candidate. So not Unusual comments there. Lots of quite angry people who are there for Trump, not necessarily there for the party, or maybe on a broader level, and maybe there for the Tea Party faction of the party. Um, are those people going to continue to throw the nomination next time? Are they not going to make it impossible for a Rubio or someone like that to get nominated? Well, politics is always messy. And I think that that's how democracy is really programmed, is for people to disagree. And, you know, you have then a rise of a leader for any number of years, whether it's four or eight, and then you have the next time round for for people to, to come at it again. So I think the differing points of view are a natural part of the, the process. What really confuses me, though, um, is, and perhaps this is my background in technology speaking, is we have more kinds of technologies available for people to understand other points of view than we've ever had before. We have Facebook pages like Humans of New York that are connecting people, millions of people all around the world over issues and ideas. And so how is it that we do have factions in America that are so unwilling to have respectful conversations and to rebuild? Elizabeth, I want to go back to a point that you made, that we could be seeing a Republican revolution and that maybe this is good for the party. Are we going to see a revolution, though? Because I can't see how this divided party is ever going to be able to throw its combined weight behind a candidate. How do you see this revolution unfolding? Well, I do think at the moment, I don't see that either. But what I do think is I think we're early enough in the, the Paul Ryan, for example, reaction to the Donald Trump video. We're early enough in that phase that where that's going to land, I think, is a complete unknown. And I think therein lies the opportunity potentially for the Republicans to rebuild. It's a shame 
they didn't do this sooner? You know, it's, yeah. it's really a shame, I think, that with the rise of Trump, you didn't see more politicians rather than just hold the party line and say, we'll stand behind Trump. I think, you know, the, the woman in the video used the word, don't they have a spine? Well, I think the stronger spine would have been more Republican leadership yeah. at the very beginning of Trump's rise saying this is a problem and we need to address this problem. This man is not a way that we see American leadership to have its place in the world. There's that question of when, as a mainstream figure in these parties, you jump in. It's opposite. You mentioned Paul Ryan there because we've got a clip of him talking about the Muslim comments, actually. Normally, I do not comment on what's going on in the presidential election. I will take an exception today. This is not conservatism. What was proposed yesterday is not what this party stands for. And more importantly, it's not what this country stands for. So we have got some of these figures starting to kind of come in and make certain comments about this. And and as Elizabeth said, perhaps the future um, of the Republican Party getting a moderate candidate, making a sort of more broad church approach comes from one of those places. I'm interested in where the kind of power bases in the party now sort of lie. You've got Trump and his voters kind of way out on one side. Who else is kind of collecting power and thinking about their next move? Well, it seems like the establishment sure aren't. Um, You know, people, that's, I think, again, as I said earlier, why I think Trump is doing well. There's a distrust of the establishment. There's a distrust of the Romneys of the world. Um, And again, I like the guy, and even I have a little distrust of some of his actions uh, during this cycle. We got a a majority in the Senate, in the Congress. They said they were going to, you know, get rid of uh, Obamacare. Nothing happened. And the same with some of the other characters that were supposed to do all these great things. They were let down in, in the Congress. So I can see why people are just fed up with it all. One reminder, though, I think, is in U.S. politics, the rise of a potential leader can come quite quickly. You know, let's take Barack Obama, for example. Obama hasn't been on people's radar for decades and decades. I mean, this guy gave a compelling, just incredible speech at the conventions right before running. It would have been four years ago before running himself, put himself on the map. And the next thing you know, it was Barack Obama, boom, you know, off he goes to the presidency from there. So I don't even know that we can pinpoint amongst current leaders who that next leader could be, because they really could come from a very unlikely place. We've established that Donald Trump is something of an anomaly. He's sort of come from nowhere. He's saying really extreme things. But it doesn't seem like the Republican Party can just go back to business as usual after him. Because as Josh pointed out, there is this core Trump base that is not going to go away. So if we're talking about this Republican revolution, what's the ideal model? They can't go back to how things used to be. So what do they do? Well, just in the immediate, the one problem they have, and and they've had this even going back to the primaries, is if they decide to diss Donald Trump, for lack of a better way of saying it, he's not going to, you know, just go. He's going to take his toys with him and leave. And he's going to tell all of his supporters, want nothing to do with this party. So as you were saying, Elizabeth, Hillary won't just win. She will win big because, you know, he's going to take his toys with him. And, he, he, you know, he's going to say, so long ado, Avita Zane, good night. I think actually we ought to, to answer that question, look to something that's going on on the Democrat side of the House, which is uh, Elizabeth Warren's huge and growing popularity at the moment for essentially taking on the big guy and being the voice. You know, she's positioning herself as the voice of the guy with no voice and taking that up to national level politics and 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 rebuilding that. I think if the Republicans 
uh, could identify their own Elizabeth Warren, who is that voice of the Trump base supporter. In other words, the person who gets it, who comes from a background that really understands why the Trump voter is so frustrated that they're voting for him. If that person could tap in appropriately to those individuals while still showing them a guiding light of how to actually make America a better place under their leadership, we could see some success. And I think that gets back to our problem with Donald Trump. He doesn't come from that crowd. So he plays into this uh, completely inhuman treatment of others, uh, which uh, somehow has become a bit popular. But he doesn't come from within. And therefore, he can't really lead that crowd in an effective way that's going to make a difference in their life. Just as a final kind of wrap up question, who do we think if Donald Trump crashes and burns, if this is a disaster, and we start looking to 2020, who is the person that, that could start to rebuild the party, could start to confront some of the problems that we've addressed here? I think we do need to watch Paul Ryan's next move very closely. In a way, his statement in Wisconsin that essentially, you know, Trump is, is not welcome here, I think was one of the first examples we saw of, of a leader just saying, look, at the end of the day, just no. <laughs> you know, enough is enough. And this is a guy who's positioned himself as that sort of family man that simply can't stand behind Trump anymore. So I think we should definitely watch him. And I think we should really watch what, what Pence is up to now, um, because throwing his hat in this race and with Trump, it still might be possible for him to disassociate himself with the Trump brand, especially given in the wake of the video, he didn't stand behind Trump. And of course, reports show us that, you know, his wife obviously wasn't standing behind Trump. Charlie, can I push you? Who do you think would be the, should be the nominee in 2020? Well, the one that impressed me going in, though I thought he was a bit young at the time, and, and unfortunately, uh, Donald Trump kind of showed him up by, you know, separating the wheat from the chaff. But I still think Marco Rubio is the American story, more, more so. And again, I don't want to take anything away from Barack Obama, but Rubio is a man as someone, you know, in my family, parents who came from Poland in the 20s, you know, when Rubio sits, stands there and says, you know, my father worked behind the bar at the back of this convention hall so I could one day stand up in the front, you know, that first generation sacrificing everything for the next, that's Rubio. You know, had his bad moments and also he had that State of the Union response with a glass of water, but hopefully he can, you know, re reject. So thank you very much to Elizabeth and to Charlie for coming in. Thanks to everyone at home for listening. Uh, you can catch us every Thursday on iTunes and SoundCloud. If you can't wait that long, you can pick up a copy of Newsweek or you can go to newsweek.com. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.